Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome, everybody, to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery, and it's brought to you by our friends at KnowYourScript.org. If you want to know more about opioids and how to talk to your doctor, how to talk to yourself, if they're safe alternatives, all you need to know is right there at KnowYourScript.org. And without them, we wouldn't be able to do this podcast. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. It's true. It it is true. So that means you went to a lot of school. I just kept going. If you t- if you keep taking out student loans, I'll just let you stay in school forever. Let me ask you this. Are you still paying student loans? Yeah, I'm almost done, though. <laughs> so you've been paying student loans longer than you went to school. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but you know what? I don't look at that as a bad thing. The the, the interest rate's so low, and it let me do what I want to do. I, not a big deal to me. You know, it's interesting you say that because, I you know, I've got kids, and they're getting ready to go to college, and I want to help them out as much as I can, but I don't think what I have is going to cover the whole bill for them. And I was talking to my right. ex-wife, and I said, hey, I think it's student loans are okay. And she goes, well, I don't want to get in that mess. And I go, well, it's going to give them a little bit of ownership in their education. Uh, see how bad they really want to go to college. If they just right. want to go and waste five years, then I've probably got about two years of funds saved up. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think you should help your kids out if you can uh, with with college. I also think they ought to have some skin in the game. It makes anytime you work for something, it's more meaningful to you. Um, I was fortunate enough to be a workaholic during college. So I paid for my undergraduate myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I didn't take out student loans till graduate school because you can't really work as much during grad school. Right. But I don't regret it at all. I don't I don't understand people that there are two types of debt. Yeah. That are okay. Okay. Because they're investments. One's your house uh-huh. and the other's your education, if that leads you to something you want to do and be. I'm so glad that I don't have some job that I hate. I love my job. I love that. I'm grateful for it. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring this back to the recovery podcast. You've oh, got yeah, to have that's some what we're skin about. in the game. Yeah, you do. There's so many addicts out there who have tried to quit for the wrong reason. There you go. I being one of them. I, I think remember every when, addict at some point has tried to quit for the wrong reasons. I remember when me and my ex-wife were going through rocky times. Mm-hmm. Why can't you quit for me? I've tried. Why can't you quit for the kids? I tried. And I wholeheartedly tried. I stood above their beds, made promises that I, I totally intended on keeping. I will never do this again. But guess what? I did it again. The only way I found recovery is when I finally decided to do it for myself to put skin in the game. I felt if I was doing it for someone else, it would make it easier, but I wasn't holding myself accountable because I wasn't ready to commit. I wasn't ready to quit. I was quitting for you. I was quitting for the kids. And that's not how this game works. You've got to be able to quit for yourself. Yeah, there has to be personal motivation. I, I think on some level that's true for anything we're really good at or really successful at. And I'm not sure there's anything really much harder than going from an addiction to a life of recovery. I think that's a really hard path. Mm-hmm. It's certainly a path worth doing. But if you're trying to do it for other people, that's just, it's it's too strong uh, of a force yeah. to, 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 to handle it. And I think, I mean, you tell me what you think, but I've talked to other people that doing what you just described, you know, being very sincere, standing over your kids' beds, making promises to God, to the kids, to your wife, uh, I make deals with then, the devil. Deals I mean, with the who, devil. Whoever Whoever's out listen, there, right? Whoever listen, I made a promise to. Whoever, I mean, and, and I and I meant it. And very I tried sincerely, a hundred percent. But then you break it, 
And all of a sudden, and what happens to your self esteem? Right in the toilet. Yeah. Not only that, it breaks apart relationships mm-hmm. because now my ex-wife didn't think I loved her enough to quit. And that had one thing didn't have to do with the other. It, to be honest with you, it didn't. Did I love my ex-wife? A hundred percent. Did I plan on quitting for her? A hundred percent. Did I do it? I couldn't. I wasn't ready and, and it didn't happen. But that didn't mean I didn't love her. It didn't mean that I didn't love my kids standing above them, making them promises that dad's not going to do this again. Dad's going to be a better dad tomorrow. Because I didn't do it, did that mean I didn't love my kids? No. And I know that now. I love my kids with all my heart and I would give them everything I could. And that's why I'm trying to do it. But I'm doing it for me. Because when I'm better, I'm a better person for them. Yeah, if you put sobriety above everything else, then you can do everything else. Yeah. You put anything above sobriety, that's the first things you're going to lose if you don't do it. One of the things that I think has been great about, just for me on being on this show uh, over the last few years, is getting to meet the spouses of the addicts. We've had quite a few spouses of addicts on the show and how they benefited from the education about how addiction works. Because I'm sure your ex-wife did feel like he doesn't really love me. And I know kids grow up in homes with alcoholic or addicted parents, and they often feel like my mom or my dad don't love me or they would stop. And when the change that can come over a person and the family, when the education happens and you realize that's not how it works, the love is there. But the addiction is powerful Strong. And, and it changes it changes minds because you understand it and it changes hearts because then you can understand the person better. All right. Before we get to our guests, I have another thing I want to talk to you about. Right on. And I know we've talked about it before in this podcast, but I've, I hear it quite a bit lately uh, when talking with parents, when talking about loved ones, talking with exes about their loved ones who are addicts. And they go, I don't know what I'm doing. Leper doesn't change his spots. You know what I mean? They, they, Can't teach an old dog new tricks. Yeah, yes, it does. <laughs> uh, you can teach an old dog new tricks. Absolutely. And a leopard can change its spots. Yep. The one thing goes back to what we were talking about previous is you've got to have skin in the game. That person has want to have to want to do that. But we show you week in and week out of people who have changed, who have made miraculous changes, who have changed their lives for the better. We've had people here who have been in dire straits, living on the street, homeless, selling their bodies to feed their addiction, now living fruitful lives and being contributing members of society. So you tell me people don't change. They do. They change. They absolutely do. They absolutely can. Um, I think it feels daunting when you're in the depths of something like an addiction it's hard sometimes to wrap your mind around it, or if you have a loved one that, that hasn't changed time and time again, they've had relapse time and time again. I understand the discouragement, but that's what I love about this show uh, and similar shows that are out there is showing that recovery is not only possible, but it's happening all the time. And some of the very best people in our communities that are doing so much for our communities are recovering addicts. A hundred percent. And that's what's so amazing is that uh, we're going to meet our guest here in a second. But when the mics were off, she goes, I had lost everything. And she's got a TikTok video that we're going to play for you in a bit. She goes, I lost everything. You love the TikTok, don't you? I do love the TikTok. But the thing about that, and I've said that before, I lost everything. And that's not true. I didn't lose everything. Everything means you got nothing. I had something. I lost a lot of things, but I didn't lose everything because I'm still here. And I still got I still got a cup. And I'm I would still say the all game. the good stuff came right back. Yeah. And that's what, but sometimes in the attic brain, that is so hard to comprehend. After you've seen living in a nice house and all these things and the cars and the jobs and all that stuff to not having anything, it feels like you lost everything. But you didn't. Because you're still in the game. You still got moves. You can still do stuff. And you can get all that stuff back. That stuff is And make it better than it ever was, especially when we're talking about relationships yes and so I, a leopard does change its spots you can teach an old dog new tricks and you know what recovery is possible and this podcast is proof of that we show you week in and week out yeah i love it it's fun it's fun i i drive over here from every every week when we record i drive over here from my downtown office and you know i've had other things on my mind and i get excited as my mind shifts to thinking about our guest and what what relationship we're going to make with our guest and what we're going to learn about their lives. It's a real it's uplifting for me. Not that my job feels like a downer because it doesn't, but it's fun to leave the bureaucracy of the university 
in the rearview mirror and drive over here and have a real positive experience. I look forward to it every week. Well, you're going to look forward to our guest today. Her name is Stephanie Ross. Uh, she did say when the mics were off, she lost everything. We're going to find out more about that. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Stephanie Ross. How are you? I'm good. How are you? So uh, I, 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 I think it was your cousin that reached out to me. Right. Said, Stephanie's got an amazing story. I really love your podcast. Can you try to get her on? I shot you a text. You were more than willing to come in. So uh, how does the story of Stephanie begin? Okay. So I'm from Ogden. Um, I was born and raised in the area of Ogden. Uh, when I was three, my parents had gotten divorced. And my mom had married my stepdad. And my earliest memories are in a bar. Uh, My mom and my dad owned a bar, or my stepdad. And it was called The Frog. And so we got to spend our weekends at the bar. And I just remember, you know, playing on the stage, sleeping in the back room when the nights were open, you know, jump in the um, booths. And so that kind of scene was what I've grown up with from such a really young age. So were the characters, you know, the patrons of the bar, did they treat you like family? Did they know you were the owner's kids? And, I mean, I, in my head, I'm envisioning a kind of a Cheers scenario because you go back and watch the old sitcom Cheers, and it was a family. Everybody knew what was going on, and everybody was involved in everybody's life. And I, and, and some bars are like that. Most aren't. But was it kind of like that for you? Um, so not so much, like, with the, you know, the visitors, but the bar uh, staff? crew, staff, yeah. They're still, you know, I still have Facebook friends. Like, we, yeah, they were really close. And my stepdad and my mom, they were partiers. Like, they, ha- you know, she put on a good time. And so, <laughs> you know, it was a family deal. And and so we got really close with all of them for quite some time. And But that was what I, you know, that was what I knew. And, you was, know, that's interesting because... The bar then for you kind of felt like home, home. right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you think about uh, behavioral associations, emotional associations, things start to take on certain feelings if we associate them together. So the whole Pavlov's dog mm-hmm. kind of idea. And so for most people, a bar wouldn't feel like home. But if you grew up there, yeah. then it would feel like a very comfortable a uh, place, maybe even a place you wanted to be, because it sounds like you had a lot of fun there as a kid. When you think okay. about it, as a young teenager, it, it's like a forbidden fruit. I mean, you're, oh, you, you can't go into the bar. Yeah, when you're a teenager. It, it, what what happens there? It sounds I remember amazing. walking down the street, Twenty Fifth Street in Ogden, when I was a teenager. First of all, that was a scary place to be back in the eighties, and and I remember peeking in the bars, like, oh, what's going on in there? You know, what kind of fun is happening behind those doors? <laughs> Why do you have to be a certain age to get in there? But it is, it's something that it, it's mysterious for some. It, it, it's scary, but for you, it was home it was it was and you know and i don't remember what year they sold that i think by the time i was 10 but those are my earliest memories like that was you know my mom she's always a party she was a party thrower and so at any point during those adolescent years did you imbibe did you taste any alcohol did you did you try it at that time no no we um thought it was fun to get the glasses and fill it up with coke and pepsi and you know act like we were Oh, doing sure. it it's but, like a playing house playing yeah bar, yeah because right? yeah. you, you know the little handles with all the 10 yeah. different you know oh, that's pretty but we are back behind the bar and drinking snapple uh bottles yeah you know? we did that growing up because my parents drank and we'd go to you know 
restaurants and they'd order drinks and me and my brothers we'd get Roy Rogers, which is the same thing as a Shirley Temple, but it's just for boys. Oh, which is just Sprite and grenadine. Makes you feel a little better. But I mean, but that it was it was one of those things. It's like, well, these guys are getting a special drink. Why don't we get a special drink? And so we'd get a, a Roy, Roy Rogers. Rogers. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. So, you know, we did that at that time throughout the bar stages. No, I, I didn't try anything. And then they sold it when you were 10. Uh, uh, I think it was around, but right around I was 10. Mm-hmm. Around, I can't remember for sure. But, but that's most of your early life, ele- most of elementary school growing up yeah. at, at the bar. Yeah. So my, like, and my dad had custody of us when they split. And so, but then throughout my whole life, it was jumping back and forth between the two houses. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I never had a place where I really fit in and then switching schools. And then my mom liked to move. So it wasn't every other year at the same school. It was like in Ogden or out in West Haven. So we moved a lot. And I just would just, you know, I'm very social, very friendly. Um, and I just find someone to fit in with. But so you um, really never had a place to plant your roots? Not like. I mean, in a friend circle. <laughs> No, no, not in like the younger years. I mean, I still am connected with some people from elementary, you know, but like as I went from elementary, then I'd go to a different junior high and then I'd switch to junior high and go back to the other one. So by the end of my junior high years is when I started using like eighth, eighth to ninth grade, um, drinking and smoking pot. And um, I just found that, you know, I was fun. I was fun. And so would it be unfair to say that the bar years were some of the more stable, consistent years because that was a place you went? No. No. You were moving around a lot. Yeah. But the bar itself was consistent until they sold it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that might even make the bar feel a little more like home because with all this moving around until you were 10 or so – you had you had the bar to go back to and the family of the staff and mm-hmm. everybody. It's interesting. Yeah, and and you know, my dad had gotten married to my stepmom and we didn't have a you know, me and her weren't a good time. You didn't um, vibe. Yeah, no, and he worked nights and so and I wasn't allowed to call my mom, you know, cuz me and my mom's relationship was it was toxic, but like she she was my person. And um so your stepmother wouldn't let you call your mom if you were if upset were, yeah. or <laughs> no. wanted to. And for, nope. <laughs> for the young kids listening, back in the old days, you didn't have a phone in your pocket that you could go in another room. No, you had yeah, a phone no. with a large cord and it draped was, around the whole house. Right. And yeah. it was in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was in the kitchen where, the you know, every Everyone part. could listen to your call. Yeah. yeah, and so, you know, at those times, like, you know, that's when I started, you know, my loneliness or... Uh, you know, feelings of abandonment a little bit. Like, I was just alone in this little... Did you have siblings? Room. I did. I have a little sister, and then she had three kids also. Oh. We were treated yeah. differently, though. So you had a sister, a, a full biological mm-hmm. sister. How much younger than you? She's three years younger. Three years. Mm-hmm. Were you close? Or, or sometimes three years is a little too much space. Yeah, to... we've we've been pretty close. Okay. Um, when the whole um, house jumping, we always we didn't always go together. Um, maybe first through fourth grade, um, me and her were together. And then, like, in sixth grade, she stayed with mom and, I, you know, third, and then I went to my dad. So at that so you, time is when we started separating. So you use the word abandonment issues, and I can see that. I but mean, she downplayed it. She said a little abandonment. Yeah. And, and, and that kind of struck me because you're, you're downplaying what it is, and, and, and it was a real emotion. And if you felt abandoned, that's okay. It's okay to own that. I think, but I don't know. Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I can downplay it a little, you know, but I felt I, I felt that way. But I don't like to think of it as that, like, now, like, how far I am in my recovery. Like, and seeing, like, knowing what my mother and stuff went through, like, I understand her struggles a little more, you, got a you more know? more insight. Yeah. And so I'm a little bit more understanding on, you know, where I was uh, and why I was feeling these ways and, you know, my insecurities played into that my insecurities ultimately ended up being a big part of my addiction and you know you're bringing up sort of a a good meta topic for the listeners to know and that is sometimes people avoid therapy uh whether it's addiction recovery therapy or otherwise because they avoid aspects of therapy because they don't want to sound like oh i'm criticizing or "I'm, i'm being overly critical of people in my life 
the way I would look at it is we're not judging that. We're just trying to understand the influences that might have created insecurities, right? So not having a real solid, grounded home base and solid, grounded relationships do create insecurities in those early years. Now, we can look back on it and realize, well, your parents were the architects of that that instability because they were moving you around as much. But we can also understand that they were probably dealing with their own difficult issues in their lives and maybe doing the very best they can. So it's not a criticism per se, right? Right. Your mother or your father or people like that. Um, I mean, feel they're your parents who criticize them if you want, but I'm just saying sometimes people stop their uh, in-depth analysis because they don't want to feel like they're criticizing those important people in their life. And I would say, let's reframe that to, we're not criticizing them. We're just trying to understand the dynamics of everything that mm-hmm. happens so that you can have personal insight and say, well, why was I an insecure kid? You know, well, it kind of makes sense. Sometimes my sister was there. Sometimes she wasn't. Sometimes I was moving around to these different right. houses and there was a lot of bouncing back and forth. And, you know, there's a lot of security that comes from a kid who says, this is my house and this is my neighborhood and this is my school. And it doesn't sound like you really had that on a consistent basis. Well, like, and my dad, let me talk, my dad's always been stable, consistent. He's been a solid core. So me moving back and forth was ultimately like my choices Mm -hmm. and um, really what I wanted to do, but also like to be with my mom. You know, Mm -hmm. I longed for that, Mm -hmm. that love for my mother. you said it was toxic? My my mom. Your relationship with your mom? Yes. So let me explain that a little bit. Yes. My mom was an alcoholic. Um, and a very, very bad alcoholic. And so for my younger year, you know, really young, like that was the household I grew up in. Very toxic, very, it was abusive. Um, but on the outside looking in, we were a great, perfect family. Picture perfect, you know, like what happened behind closed doors was not allowed to be talked about. From an early age, gifts became... A big thing. Um, when something bad behind the scenes happened, we would get gifted things mm. for our silence. So they be, were bribes, uh-huh. really. Basic, yeah. Like you be quiet. Now I bought you a Barbie that didn't happen last night. Wow. Type of stuff. Yeah. So um, that's you know I that's kind of how it was with her. I had this attraction for her, and um, like. I needed my mom, you know, um, her, my dad and my sister have a really close relationship. And then it was me and my mom. I'm, I'm her in in a whole, you know, why do you think that was so important to you? I mean, it sort of seems obvious a little girl would want to have a relationship, but why do you think it was so, it sounds like it was really important to you to have that close relationship with your mom. I, I don't know at that time that being that young on why, um, I know in my, like, as I got into, you know, seventh and eighth, and so, it's because I could just manipulate her and I could do whatever I wanted at that point, you know. Um, by the time seventh grade, her alcoholism, she was a repetitive drunk. So it's like you would have to sit and listen to her. But you, she drank and, and the devil came through. Like she, it was like she was almost possessed. It was pretty terrifying. Um, and she would drive us around, you know, and, Take me to the skating rink three times a week, Mom, because that's what I want to do, you know. And and if I didn't want to go to school, I didn't have to. And she would just do whatever I wanted. Um, and so seventh grade, she finally – I we were at my dad's for the weekend. And come to find out, she's in, she, we come home and she's in treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, she got herself into the ACT in Ogden mm-hmm. for the first time. So at that time is when we were uh, first introduced to AA and – you know, at that time, I'm like, wow, you know, you could see a whole different person of my mother. She was great. If you knew her, you loved her. Like at her funeral, I don't, there was five to 800 people. There were people that just kept coming and coming and coming. You know, mm. she was just, a, she was a good person. Um, and so that was our first introduction to recovery. Mm-hmm. And it was like, wow, this is pretty neat, you know. And we would go to all the events and she would help. You know, she's a party planner, so she would help set up the parties or, or fundraisers and things like that. And so we got introduced to that, and then we moved back out to our other house, and that's when I was drinking and smoking. And about ninth-ish grade, she 
would come to Salt Lake and work when she worked at um, Wells Fargo, and she wouldn't come home for a few days. Mm-hmm. Well, the boys running the basement had just graduated high school, and it was and Party she would leave session. us in charge of you know them in charge of us, and that's when our the big party started and you know my little sister was there and i don't i don't even know why this was okay you know <laughs> i couldn't imagine i think technically it wasn't okay but, yeah it uh, wasn't like but but at that time you know it was what was that was like our what, life. what happened uh, when she was out of town oh we'd just party we'd have big parties we'd drink we had a swimming pool out back and kick my sister out of her room go sleep in mom so we could turn her light on and you know just uh the boys downstairs would get, you know, and then all of my high school, you know, and we'd all get together and just. And these were just boys renting the basement. They weren't family. It or? was a family friend. So uh-huh. um, it was a family that we had grown up with and my mom was really close with and it was their son. And his friends. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, you know, at a young That's age. That's a big temptation for high school girls to have the, the older college boys living in the basement, I bet. Well, it, yeah, it was a good time. Like we just, you know, when I. Just like having a good time. Um, when I started drinking and smoking, it that was that was it for me. That was my. So, and I was thirteen, fourteen years old, and wow. then and then the drinking really picked up when I was fifteen. It was an every night thing, um, and then I stopped going to school, and um, I first and I went to the uni, and I did my first thirty days there. And that was when you were fifteen. Yeah. Why did they have you go to uni? Cause because I, was, I quit going to school and my drug addiction. And the, they were there trying to get you sober? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And And through some schooling. And So um, I'm going to stop you right there. We're mm-hmm. going to come back because I want to figure out, uh, you said your drug addiction, but up to this point we've only known about alcohol and marijuana. So we're going to find out more about that. You're listening to Project Recovery. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Willie. Our guest today is Stephanie Ross. And uh, you were just talking about that was when you first got your uh, stint in uni, which is a university hospital for mm-hmm. detox drugs. And Currently, call, the, the name's changed. Yeah. So it was University Neuropsychiatric Institute. And I like saying uni because it's a lot easier than HMHI, but now it's Huntsman Mental Health Institute. But it's a freestanding psychiatric hospital with kind of a full range of services here in Salt Lake City. And it's kind of a unique place in in the Western United States. There aren't too many places like that that aren't associated, uh, run by the state. They're they're an independent but associated with the University of Utah. So, But Dr. Matt asked why you went there, and you said it's because of your drinking and drugs. But up to this mm-hmm. point in the story... We, it's I mean, marijuana. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so and- they send you there to get some schooling and kind of... Uh, just yeah. check you out, see how everything's going. Because they quit going to school. Like she would, she started drinking again and had relapsed, you know. And so, um, what I got to do was anything I wanted. And so I'd take off in a car and I quit going to school. And you know, it all stemmed from the drinking and getting high. And then, you know, the little red devils at that point, and a little bit of mushrooms. The mm-hmm. red devils were. Terrifying. If I remember, uh, Red Devils were a form of kind of speed, over-the-counter speed. Amphetamine. It's, it's Sudafed. Sudafed. Cold yeah. and cough, yeah. 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 And you take, like, all of them and get really sick. So I don't think they even have those on the shelf anymore, right? No. Because it was such a mm-hmm. huge... But I do remember kids talking about that back when I was a kid, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah was, and, you know, so a little bit of that. Um, but then I ended up up there for the outpatient, and I did that for... The 30 days. Oh, that makes sense. You mentioned you were doing some schooling up there, and they mm-hmm. have an in, an IOP, an intensive outpatient program called Teen Scope. Yes. And they were, they that's where half, you'd go up there Monday through Friday, probably, and you'd do half a day of school and a half a day of different Treatment. types of therapy. Mm-hmm. And so I completed that, and then they took me home, and I was supposed to go to Clearfield High at that point. And my, I didn't. I wasn't comfortable with myself. I knew nothing about me. I didn't know any Stephanie. I didn't know which way to walk. I, I knew nothing, you know? And so I'd go in the school and I'd walk out, out the back, like, because my grandma worked in the cafeteria. So she, I, she would give me a ride and I'd walk out the back down to my cousins. And I'm like, I, you know, I'm so not grandma doing this. facilitated that? Grandma took <laughs> you no, grandma took no, her to school. school. Oh, took yeah, you to school. Yeah, took me to school. And then, and then ah, she, she worked in the cafeteria. Right, so she'd right, go to work right. and I'd leave. 
you know, and it was at first it was a confusion on my schedule. I didn't know, you know, what to do. And so I just, I never figured it out. So I left. Well, and, let me ask you this. I'm kind of curious at this age. So you're 15 still mm-hmm. in the story. So, and you started drinking at 13, you said. Mm-hmm. So I, I, that's an interesting time because that early to mid adolescence is the time where kids are usually the most rebellious and, you know, pain in the neck kind of, you know, uh, kind of kids fighting against the man and family and all that. Did you think you needed to be at uni? Did you think you needed help? Um, did did you feel like you should have been in school or were you like, I don't need any of this? Were you in denial or were you, were you feeling like, yeah, things aren't going my way? I did it because they made me at that point. I, I didn't really have another choice. Um, I did a lot of therapy growing up because that she thought she was doing the best um, to get me help and fix me. Um, and so that's, you know, I never wanted it. And so I m- learned at that time how to manipulate all of this because yeah, that, want. exactly. And to get out of there. Well, I ended up not going to school again, you know, for two weeks and to get me back up in uni. <laughs> hmm. And that's, but I had been, okay, let me back up a little bit. I'd been drinking every night for months and months and months for probably six or seven months. Now, the first time I was in uni, I, I didn't tell anyone about that. I'd leave and I'd drink all night and then I'd go up there. Now, this time I finally, because I started getting sick and withdrawing from alcohol at 15 years old and I finally came clean to them and was like, okay, listen, I, I do have a problem. Like I do need help. So at that time is when they started giving me UAs. And <laughs> this is so funny. When uh, So I thought on the weekends, because, you know, Monday through Friday, that I could smoke weed on Friday and for some reason drink cranberry juice, a gallon of it, <laughs> and I'd come up clean on Monday. And I didn't come up clean. I got caught. Yeah, I got yeah. caught. <laughs> you kids, know, kids believe a lot of a lot of stories about that kind Freaking of stuff. Freaking crazy, yeah. you know, cranberry juice. Um, Frozen spoon will take a hit. Yeah, off too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's when I they closed all the doors, shut down all the unit, and told me um, I was going to Provo Canyon School. For those who don't know, Provo, Can- Provo Canyon School was. It was a lockdown school. You couldn't leave, and it it had psychiatric treatment, but you stayed there. It was 24 hours a day. Yes, you did not leave. You did not go outside. It's considered a residential treatment school. Currently, I don't think it's in existence, or maybe it is, but there's some backlash going on. Uh, Paris Hilton attended that school. Uh, and uh, she's been up on the Capitol talking yeah. about some mm-hmm. of the stuff, and I, and I don't know enough to, to say either way. Uh, I'm not aware of the details of that case either, but, you know, um, it's tough. It's tough. Do we not provide that kind of treatment for kids? Uh, I don't think that's the answer. But we could ask but her, we what could, is your you experience? Know. What was your experience? It was program? awful. It was it was um, humiliating. Uh, you had the staff there that was just degrading. Um I left there a worse person than I had ever went in. And fortunately for me, I only had to be there for four months. And some of those girls had been there for years. They were from out of state and they had different insurance. Um, My insurance had dropped and so I got to go home. Thank goodness. But um, I I didn't leave there better. I didn't leave there um, changed. Um, I left there worse. And I, you know, the self-confident confidence the insecurities it was a place of treatment but you couldn't see your family they could visit maybe and then you did phone treatment with them and you were um you were like coached into your conversations with your parents and so they didn't really know what was really happening you know and and that's that's horrible i uh, have a lot of empathy for you that's an awful experience um, and that's why there needs to be good oversight. Mm-hmm. And I support people like Paris Hilton making awareness uh, because treatment facilities are necessary for, for a lot of adolescents. Yes. But they should be safe, healthy, well-run. And they can be, and many of mm-hmm. them are. But that's that's awful that that was your experience. You said it, it kind of affected your self-esteem. Can, was there anything that comes to mind? Like I think the listeners might be curious, like what happened in their that made it made you feel like a worse person yeah you just had adult women that were supposed to be like that at that point was your parental supervision or or the humans that you 
only had to look up to because you couldn't even leave to the outside world. You couldn't walk outside. So you were stuck in there and there was no examples of grace or no examples of kindness. And you 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 were just stuck with these other sick girls too. Mm. Feeling this and feeling, you know, degraded. It was there was no good example in that building. And it doesn't sound like good treatment. I mean, no. your attitudes, uh, your health, your mental health wasn't improving. So, so much in no. fact that you said you left worse than you got there. Yeah. So um, I have ADHD. And from when I was younger, too, um, I've been, I was on meds. So when I took my meds, they were really great, you know, and through the treatment centers and stuff, like I had to take them right and consistently. And they did a really great job. Um, when I left that place that night, I went over to the park and I, I smoked weed immediately. Like that was the very first thing I got home and put my bags in my room and went over to the park. And that, you know, I was back at it. Um, and that's when I started um, abusing my Adderall. And I found out what else it did. Um, and I could break them apart and snort them. And that took me. So to now, a whole now you've gone place. from like alcohol and marijuana, which are kind of mellowing and, and they're, you know, can be depressants. Uh, and now you're into stimulants with Snorting Adderall. Up for days, just like, wow, this is the greatest thing. Look at everything I can do. Um, I lost weight really, really quickly, you know, although I'd been on it like, and then, you know, that was, you know, part of my confidence. I lost the weight and, and my confidence boosted. Um, I was the queen of Stephanie and I, you know, and then within a few weeks coming down off of that was so, it it was painful. It was so sickening. Um, when you ran out of Adderall, is that what you're saying? Uh, no, just like, like when I was at the, you know, when I got real tired and needed to go to sleep. Like, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. you're not supposed to be up for four days at no. a time. Yeah, no, no that's true. I'm, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so eventually, your body goes, "Hey, look, we need some rest." Mm-hmm. And you're saying when your body said, "Hey, it's time to sleep," it did not feel good. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and so. Um, I knew what my I have, you know, older cousin, I knew what he was doing and I quickly switched over to meth. And so my meth addiction started at 15, 16 years old. I got my first DUI at 16 um for being high on meth. Um and they took me up to a behavioral center and wouldn't keep me uh in Ogden. Like they arrested me in Davis County, took me to Ogden and those people are like, come get your kid. It's like, we're not keeping her. You need to come get her. And so my dad came and got me. And, you know, of course, like, I was just mean and evil. And um, it, this was a few months before my dad moved to Okinawa. And they had talked about me going. No way was I leaving my new lifestyle to go there. <laughs> like, how am I going to take my drugs with me, you know? I couldn't. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that's the first time someone on the show has said my dad moved to Okinawa. It is. <laughs> so what, just out of curiosity, what, why did your dad move to Okinawa, uh, Japan? He worked on the base. And uh-huh. so they, him and my sister moved over there as civilians. And so your sister went? Yes. Ah. Um, you stayed home with your mom. Now, is your mom currently using alcohol at this time? Yes. Yeah. So she's, she's drinking and... Um, uh, what happened was I had been coming down, and I was at her house, and she was really drunk. And, again, she was terrifying, you know, but I grew up through this my whole life. Um, but now into my addiction, my emotions are a different kind of, like, I can't walk away from her, you know, and really heightened, and I'm really mean. And so we get into a big fight this night, and she, I'm like, leave me alone, leave me alone, let me sleep. And that's not what happened. And so it was really, really physical um, with her and my aunt. And my dad ended up picking me up and moving me down to with a family in Salt Lake that I'd become friends with and thought that that was, you know, the safest place for me. Um, I really didn't have another option. I mean, I have a lot of family, but my (laughs) nobody wanted me. You know, I'm out of control, I'm just doing everything I want because 
at that point, anything that Stephanie wanted, Stephanie got. And I was just, I was, I was destructive. Nobody wanted anything to do with me. So I moved down with his family and that was the first time I got clean off meth, probably 17 at that time. And, but I never stopped using, I started drinking down there and doing lots of pills. And so, you know, and I thought, you know, being off meth, that I was doing the right thing, but no, like, You're just I, I, yeah. yeah, I was continuing my addiction in a whole other sense. And, um, I lived down there for about four or five months. Now, as I mentioned earlier with my mom, her saris were things. So she got me an apartment. Um, so I would move back down here and that was my, my hush. So she know? bought you an apartment. That was her present. That was her, you know. You don't talk about it. You just live here. But you got to get a job, Stephanie, and you have to stay clean. And by this time, I had relapsed down there once or twice and come home. And I'm like, well, you're paying for this. It's paid for. I'm here. I'm not doing that. (laughs) What did you like about meth? Like, why was that a drug of choice for you? I just, like, it gave me confidence. Like, I lost the weight. Um, Just, I just loved the way I felt. Like, I... Just love going, 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 you know. I hadn't, I never had any direction. Uh, you know, I never ha- really had any consequences. Um, I just got to do what I wanted to do, and that's what I wanted to do. And um, for the DUI that I had gotten a few years prior at the apartment, um, I ended up having to do 30 days in jail, was my first time. My uncle, like, I hadn't paid about 100 of my fine, and my uncle called them and was like, she's messing up. He's such a hypocrite because they used with him. But I wouldn't give him anything anymore, so he called my PO on me, so I went to jail for 30 days for my oh. first time. And then I ended up— You're actually using with your uncle, but then because you wouldn't give him any more, he, he turned you in. Yeah. You're listening to Project Recovery. We're going to find out how Stephanie's rock bottom came about and what she's doing now. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. All right, so you're talking about your first 30 days in jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, where does your life go from here? So I get pregnant after that with my son, and I got clean, quit smoking, everything. Um, had that baby boy, and he was going to change my world. Uh, no. I gained a lot of weight. Again, I'm right back to the meth. And so, you know, I use that as my staple, like to. Because you know, it for works. My comp- yeah. And then, you know, the spiral. Um, then I, you know, I got pregnant again. And God, I hope she doesn't see this, but I need people to know the truth. Like, I didn't stop with her, um, I didn't get clean with her. Her dad started leaving me for days, and I. I didn't know how to cope with any of that. And, like, so I used with her, like, the whole time. Um, I had her, and she was perfectly fine. She's been perfectly fine since, you know, God was watching over her. Um, And then I got in trouble again right after she was born, and I did drug diversion in Weber County. Mm -hmm. Um, And I got clean off meth for a year. I didn't do anything. I didn't go get a job. I didn't do anything. I was just like, I'll get through the program like they want me to, but I drank every weekend. So I manipulated my way through that program, too. And then as soon as I was off, back out, back out. And that's when I started shooting up. So Um, you went for shooting meth or shooting heroin? Meth. So I was back out, and and that's when I started shooting meth. It was 21. Yeah, she was 21, 20. Yeah. And so... That took me down a whole nother spiral. I was already the devil. I was already so mean. But that was a whole nother Stephanie that was just, um, it was terrifying and scary. Um, So I'm just going to, can you give an example? Because you've mentioned, uh, you know, that you were the devil and you've mm -hmm. said, he's like, what what are you talking about? I was so mean to people. Um, I took advantage of anyone I wanted to. Um, My family, you know, they've always been like, there and supportive and i would just you give me money and then just mean 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 to them so Um, you weren't gracious they'd give you money thinking that you were to say thank you and you were just entitled to it uh yeah i was entitled to whatever i wanted yeah um i was like my i would leave my kids with my dad it was his responsibility to care for them 
Um, all of you these You just things. expected him to, to do the parenting. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but I didn't want to take him out in that world. I didn't want to involve them in any of that, you know, because here I am, what, six years in, I know what's going on out there. Like, and so I left them. Um, and then I got a ticket in the beginning of 2011. And the judge had made ordered me that I needed to do, do classes. Um, at, in September of 2011, I decided that I was going to get clean and I was going to give these classes a chance. So I stayed home for four days and um, I couldn't do it anymore. I just did not have that will to actually, the want to do it. And... I you left. didn't have the will to do the drugs or to stay clean? To stay clean. Okay. I wasn't ready. Um, and so I left that weekend, and um, this is the weekend that changed my life. Uh, my sister had found me, and she tells me, we can't find Mom. She's missing. And she'd been drinking and throughout the year still... Um, She'd gotten a DUI in April that year, and um, she went to treatment, but then she was, you know, back out. But my, me and my mom had a really sick, toxic relationship, so, like, uh, we kept each other sick. Like, I'd go to the liquor store for her, and then she'd give me money for my dope. Or, like, when I was really, really sick, she would pick me up and um, take care of me and feed me and, you know, nurse me back to feeling better, and then I'd fight with her and I'd leave and we just had a really sick relationship. And this weekend, my sister, you know, she's like, we can't find mom. And so there were some suicide notes that were left. But this was a routine thing that we'd gone through a, a lot that she drinks, she drives. She said she was going to kill herself and end up calling the cops on herself and going to treatment. So it was a thing that we did a lot. Um, this time was different, though. Um, she left her purse and her computer and and everything. And so the sheriffs pinged her phone up at Pineview around there at Huntsville. And um, my cousin Natalie and Jeremy and his wife and them, uh, they went looking for my mom that night and no luck. So the next day they did a lot of flyers and posters and, you know, put word out on Facebook and everyone went looking for her and... Um, Still nothing. And I, you know, I had broken into her house at that point, sitting on her couch, like knowing that she's going to pull in with that BMW. She's coming home. So I just sat there and stared out the window. And um, that night, they, uh, the owner of Academy Mortgage, I just found this out today, is who funded the helicopter um, to go up around the dam. And it was like seven o'clock at night. And I'm like, this is really strange and weird, but it was God's timing that a light had hit off of her her car and they'd found her in the dam. Um, she'd ultimately, her, alcoholi- uh, her alcoholism led to her suicide and, and she ultimately took her life. And, you know, driving, my cut, they weren't going to tell me, but I had someone on search and rescue that called and told me that there was a car found. And so I headed up there. I had to know, you know, and, when we got there, the sheriff, he, or the fire chief, he was like, well, we're going to put you up over here. And about five minutes later, they just said, it's her. Um, and that's when my whole world, um, my whole world turned. Um, and my mom was gone. You know, the last thing that I ever thought would ever happen, you know, and she's... And so that was September 6th of 2011, and I went right back to her house and just, I became worse than I ever was, in, ever. Um, I took over her house like, it, like I deserved it. Like, I, I went in the house like it was mine. Um, I went in the house and just really, she was a hard worker, you know, she really tried, um, to have nice things and she, you know, she worked her way and I just really took advantage of who she was and just destroyed her, her home. Um, and over the next year, um, 
the meth wasn't doing it for me anymore, and that's where the heroin comes into play. Um, something that I would never touch or use was became my my safe, you know, my safe place to hide my feelings. It is what it was. But it took me down faster in that year than the previous using ever did. And on September 4th of 2012, I always said I wanted to be clean before her anniversary date. Um, I got arrested. And, or no, it was August 22nd. I got arrested in Davis County. And I called my family, like, get me out of here. You guys have to get me out. And they told me no. <laughs> and that was the best thing that they could have ever done for me. They finally told me no. And I ended up in the drug court program. And at first, the first four months, I was doing it again for everyone else. Um, that's how I'd always done my programs. Because at the end of it, I could be back to who, whoever that, that girl was, you know. And so I relapsed in January of 2013. And the judge, when I first went in, I used on a Monday. I went to court Tuesday. He gave me four hours for being honest. And I was like, oh, I got away with it. <laughs> and then the next day I u- or I didn't use, but I U-8'd again, and my levels were higher. And I believe that was God. Uh, and I had to turn myself in. So your levels actually had gone up uh-huh. even though you hadn't used? Yeah. Interesting. And if I would have gotten away with that, I would have honestly probably continued that behavior that I'd always known, you know. But I had to go to jail. They put me in the work center so I could go to treatment from there from davis county so i had to walk a mile and a half like back and forth to the bus stop and this was in dead of winter it was snowing and it was icy and i had two pants and two shirts for three months and it was the most humbling experience i'd ever been through um is those months and at that point i was like you know that's when i i'm gonna change like i i have to change and so um, you know, at this point, my kids' dad has them now. My dad had them for a few years, and then the kids' dad, you know, took them out to his families. And I was—I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what to do with myself. I didn't—I didn't know anything because from such a young age, I started this lifestyle, and anything productive or responsible, I'd never done, and so. I did that program, and I graduated at 20 months, and I started going to AA. Like, I, the first meeting I went to was in Ogden, and there were two people there. Like, okay. <laughs> you know, I did a couple in jail because it was one of my mom's friends and just needed that. And so I'd go to AA in jail, but I started going to recovery up in Ogden and up to Valley Camp and the Women's Retreat and all these meetings, and I found my home. You know, I finally found the people that loved me and that I felt comfortable with and that I belonged and people that had been on the same path I'd I'd been on and were willing to share it with me but then carried me with them. And so I've been sober ever since. Um I've been clean on her anniversary date every year. It's my tenth year. Um I just got chills. Yeah. Okay. That's, um, that's wonderful. You know, at the end of the day, um, I truly believe that one of us had to go for the other to survive. So I believe that she's walking with me. I, you know, one of, God took her to save me. You know, and, and me and my family talk about that often. That, you know, that's it is what it is. Well, that's such you know? an interesting perspective. You felt like your relationship with your mom was so codependent so Mm -hmm. toxic and destructive that if you guys had lived together in in life you would have neither one of you would have ever gotten sober so you felt like somebody had to go and that maybe that that there was a a plan or a divine intervention there yeah there there was a lot of god moments after her death that kind of were like oh okay you know, like I know, I know you're here, um, but I never thought I'd be this person. You know, I got my kids back when I was two years sober. I was stable with the job. Kind of felt, you know, a little bit of responsibility, um, and I've had them ever since. 
Um, we participate in recovery events. Those are the people I surround myself with today. Just, you know, because we're doing the same things. But we have a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Like, we do a lot of fun things. There's not... I'm so much better sober. Like, I'm a loud, fun, outgoing person. I love to have a good time. Like, I host parties for everyone, you know, to come just... Like, we watch the USC fights and everyone just comes and hangs out, you know, potluck. Like... It's just those types of things. Like, it's so possible. Real fun. It's possible. Real fun that lasts, that you remember. Real relationships that are built. Uh, they're not all genuine. You know, shadowed by authentic by mm-hmm. drugs and alcohol. How's your relationship with your father? It's really good. So I, I we lived um, together. I live with him, and I get to take care of him now. The roles have reversed. He was always there. You know. He was, me. like you yeah. said, that stable force uh-huh. when you were younger, and now you get to be that for him. I get to, yeah. You know, he doesn't have to worry about me. That's another thing. And my grandma, too, you know, I go over and take care of my grandma. They don't have to worry about Stephanie anymore, and they can depend on me. I'm reliable. Um, my kids are, st- you know, they have a stable home. They have consistency. You know, I have a 14-year-old, and sometimes, you know, I'm just like, they're mouthy, you know, at that age. And I'm like, but he's doing way better than I was. He's doing just fine, you know? I'm That's just wonderful. so I'm so impressed with your openness, your honest. Just because I know I've I've watched you throughout this whole podcast and some of the stuff you've been saying has been tough for you to say. I, I, I can see it in your body language, I can hear it in your voice. But at one point during the podcast you said, I hope they don't see this, but they've got to know. I can't – secrets make us sick, and if mm-hmm. we hide stuff, we're not doing them any benefits. And I think you're going to help a lot of people with this podcast and your story. Uh, Dr. Matt, what are your thoughts? No, I absolutely agree with that, and I admire your you know, courage to come on and share your story. Um, even though you've been sober now for a decade, uh, that's still – it's still challenging and takes courage to be able to share your story. My question for you is – so I often think in terms of people's development mm-hmm. and during your important developmental years, you were kind of running wild. You were kind of a feral kid. You weren't <laughs> even required to go to school. And and you mentioned that you didn't know who you were. And that's a result of that, you know, unstructured childhood. You don't, you know, when you can just run wild and get involved in drugs and alcohol at a young age, you don't really develop a healthy sense of self. But I get the sense that maybe you feel like you have a better sense of who you are now. Would you agree with that? So let's ask you, yeah. who are you? Today I, uh, I'm Stephanie. Um, I'm a mother, a daughter, a wife. I'm a homeowner. Um, I'm a friend. Um, and I just genuinely love people. I want to see people succeed. I want to help them if I can. You know, um, I... My sponsor and them, you know, they are all in the big book and about sponsoring other people, you know, and I'm trying to raise littles right now. So I'm just hoping just to share my story even to help someone else. Or if people message me, I'll talk them through, you know, like that is my contribution, like giving back. But talking about it, um, I just hope that it gives someone hope. Like it's possible. I was supposed to be that girl my entire life. That's who I thought I was going to be. And these last nine years have been everything but that. Um, It's been a growing, challenging, you know, full of blessings. I always say your struggles give you your greatest strength. And I'm definitely my best self today. And what I see is a strong, beautiful, confident mother. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for stopping by and listening to Project Recovery today. Don't forget that it's brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? A KSL podcast. You got it.
The contents of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.